Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. Rabbi David Rosen lives in Jerusalem, but he spends much of his time traveling the world as AJC's Director of International Interreligious Affairs. Rabbi Rosen is a member of the Chief Rabbinate of Israel's Delegation for Relations with World Religions. He is International President of Religions for Peace. He is the Honorary President of the International Council of Christians and Jews. And he is the Jewish representative on the board of directors of the King Abdullah International Center for Interreligious Dialogue. Earlier in his career, he served as senior rabbi of the largest synagogue in South Africa, and then as the chief rabbi of Ireland. He joins us today from Vatican City, where he is leading an AJC delegation to the Holy See. David, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Now, our audience just heard a list of very impressive titles and accomplishments, but one thing I didn't mention is that in 2005, the Pope actually made you a Knight of the Vatican. It almost sounds like a joke, right? Did you hear the one about the (laughs) rabbi in the Pope's army? But it's actually an incredible honor, I'd imagine. Is it safe to say that something like that would have been unimaginable even in the early years of your lifetime? Absolutely. Um, I think the first Jewish papal night, I think, was the Sigmund Sternberg of Britain, and that would have only been about 30 years ago. And the only Israeli papal night, and certainly the only Orthodox rabbi papal night, there are a few other Jews, I think about maybe four others uh, alive today who are papal knights. And, um, well, I suppose I can claim a little bit of virtue for that, but the truth of the matter is that in many respects, I'm just incredibly blessed to be in the right place at the right time. So it's 40 years after the Nostra Aetate, and John Paul II wanted to be able to make a gesture and uh, knight somebody from the Jewish community, and I had just been concluding working on diplomatic relations between Israel and the Holy See, and... Um, And therefore, I, to a large extent, was the face that was interacting with the Vatican, perhaps more than anyone else, because I was both interacting with the diplomatic side of the Vatican as well as the interreligious side. And then five years later, the Queen decorated me, the Queen of England decorated me. So now if there's a war between England and the Vatican, I'm meant to pledge to defend both, so I better stay at home in Jerusalem. (laughs) Well, if this took place in 2005, correct me if I'm wrong, I think John Paul II actually died in 2005. You've got a very good memory. In fact, while he set in motion my papal knighthood, I was actually decorated under Benedict XVI. Well, that's, that's fascinating to me because, you know, th- that means that the, one of the very last acts of John Paul II's life was setting this in motion. And, and that's actually, to me, it seems like a fitting capstone to his work of interreligious understanding, particularly between Catholics and, and Jews. And so I, I'm wondering if you can tell our listeners a little bit about, you know, why is it so remarkable that there are, you know, Jewish papal knights? So I think we often today... In a way, the good news is the bad news. Today, relations between Catholics and Jews, especially in the United States, are so good that young Catholics and young Jews are often completely unaware of the tragic history that bedeviled the relationship for most of the millennia. 
Um, because until the Second Vatican Council, that was the big gathering convened by Pope John XXIII at the end of the 50s uh, to re-update the Catholic Church and to change many aspects of theology that were no longer considered suitable or appropriate. And that led to this radical change in the approach of the Church towards the Jewish people that came out in a document that actually only saw light after the death of John XXIII that is known by its opening words, Nostra Aetate, in our terms, that rejected the idea that had been commonplace within the Catholic Church and most of the Christian world until that time, that the Jews had been rejected by God, had been replaced by the Church. Proof of the fact was the fact that the temple was destroyed, the people were exiled, they were hated, they were dispersed, Jews suffered and were persecuted everywhere. And that was proof that God's wrath was on the Jews, in fact, that they were the enemies of God, that they were in league with the devil, and if they suffered, they deserved everything they got. And for that reason, the Vatican originally was opposed to the very idea of Zionism, because the idea of the return of the Jewish people to its ancestral homeland before they had accepted the Christian dispensation was considered an anathema. So Jews were the most demonized uh, by, the, uh, by the church, by the Vatican, and to have gone from that particular perspective to a perspective then that follows from this revolution that took place in the mid-60s, and that we now have popes, three popes in succession, who have not only visited the synagogue of Rome and other synagogues and been on trips to the Holy Land and given Israel its full due meeting with its highest elected officials, but described the Jewish people as a dearly beloved elder brother of the church of the original covenant never to be broken. Uh, that is a relationship that is intrinsic to the Catholic Church's own identity Entity, a relationship that's basically not really interreligious because it's in a family, a relationship like we have with no other. That's mind-boggling. There is nothing comparable in human history to have gone from such a negative attitude to such a positive one that we enjoy today. And that's why this, in a way, is not only remarkable in itself, but it has a form of inspiration for everything. Because if you can go from such a bad relationship, such a negative one, to such a positive one that we have today, then there is no relationship, no matter how analogic, how chronic, that actually cannot be rectified and transformed into a good one. And to put the finest possible point on it, you're actually in Vatican City right now, or perhaps we're reaching you at a, at a hotel just outside the walls of Vatican City, but you have business. But this morning, I was in the Vatican City speaking at a conference, and I was the Jewish speaker, the first speaker, uh, followed by a, uh, a Christian and uh, a Protestant and by a Muslim, who were giving alternative perspectives on the question of religion and the sustainable development goals, the goals of the United Nations for a flourishing human society. And this was convened by the Vatican that today doesn't just come along and say, this is what we Catholics think, but says we want to hear, we want to learn, and we want to listen to other viewpoints and put the Jews first. And there's another big meeting on your, on your schedule, isn't that right? That is indeed right. So coincidentally, or if you like, providentially, we are <laughs> uh, the AJC mission to the Vatican is here at the moment with our leaders, with uh, David Harris, uh, our uh, chief executive officer, with John Shapiro, our president, and with many of the AJC professional and lay leaders and supporters. And we will be meeting with Pope Francis on Friday. And after that, we will meet with a secretary, secretary of state. The secretary of state actually is not a secretary of state like in America. He's in fact like the prime minister and the guy in charge of the whole apparatus, the most important person after the Pope, who doesn't normally meet with groups. And the fact that he's meeting with us is a testimony to AJC's very special standing and um, its status within, within the Vatican and the Catholic Church today. And we'll have that meeting, and that takes place just after the Pope has announced that he's opening up the secret 
archives of the Vatican to be able to deal with the historical period of the Shoah, which has been a source of a certain amount of tension in the relationship in the past. So it's been a, and is and will be a remarkable week for Catholic Jewish relations and for AJC in particular. David, I want to ask you about those Vatican archives. This is an auspicious time to be at the Vatican. You know, on the eve of AJC's visit, the Pope announces that he's going to be opening up these World War II-era archives, perhaps finally answering longstanding questions about, you know, what was perceived as inaction by the Vatican during the Holocaust. How important is this? Well, it's really important in terms of clearing the air as much as it's possible to clear it. In other words, we need to be able to say that any evidence that exists has been objectively assessed and that therefore it's possible to make um, a justified historical assessment without any suspicions that this is being prevented by anyone. So it's important for the records and it's important for Jews and Catholics to collaborate on that and to assess it. So it's significant and it's significant that the Pope sees, understands that importance and wants it to go ahead. There's nothing fundamentally radical in that in as much as materials, archival material, Vatican archival material is normally released 70 years after the end of the papacy. And it's almost 70 years after the end of Pope Pius XII's papacy. But because there has been such controversy over what was really the role of the Pope and the role of the Vatican during that period, the absence of scholarly access to that material has kind of fueled certain fires of suspicion. And therefore, it's been one of the irritants in the Catholic-Jewish relationship. Opening it up will do away with that irritant in many respects. But in all honesty, I don't think it's going to resolve the historical question, because in an end, of course, we can know much more about what the Vatican did and what the Vatican didn't do. But we're not likely to find any smoking gun relating to the personality of Pope Pius XII. And in a way, it's a hypothetical debate, which is, if he would have done what he could have done, but didn't do, would it have been different? We know that Pope Pius XII did not speak out clearly against Nazism and the extermination machine of the Jews, extermination of the Jews. Now, his defenders say that's because he made a calculation not to do so, because he genuinely thought that it would be worse. The consequences would be greater if he went to battle against the Nazis. They would pour out their wrath more on the church even than they were on opponents. And he genuinely believed the consequences could be even more disastrous. From a Jewish perspective, the very idea that you can talk of anything more disastrous than the Shah itself is ridiculous. And the very idea that you can come to any conclusion that an individual did everything he should have done in the face of such evil is an anathema for Jews. Uh, but for a Christian, the Pope is not just another guy. The calculated decision is a decision which is seen to some degree as not with divine authority, certainly with some kind of divine guidance. So I don't think we're ever really going to be able to agree on our assessment of the record of Pius XII. And if we're mature enough, we'll agree to disagree. But nevertheless, it's still really important for us to try and find out as much information as we can of what was done and what wasn't done, so that we can therefore make comments and express opinions based on knowledge and facts rather than on hypotheses and Mm-hmm. There's been a movement for years now, perhaps even decades, to declare Pius Twelfth a saint, which is something that routinely happens within the years after any pope passes away, as best I can tell. Would that be a setback in Catholic-Jewish relations if Pope Pius became Saint Pius? 
So this, I think, is really what we fear and what is not really being said publicly very loudly. AJC has been demanding the opening of the Vatican archives for more than 30 years, but we haven't said that the reason we object to Pius XII being made a saint is because of the fact that the Vatican archives have not been made available. There are Jewish organizations that have said that. But the truth of the matter is that even if the archives are open and available, we're not comfortable about the idea of Pope Pius XII being made a saint. I should say at the outset, it's not for Jews to tell the Catholic Church who are its saints or who their saints are not. That's an internal matter for them. But if the Catholic Church says it wants to live in a respectful relationship with the Jewish people, then it's right to say to them, if you respect our sensitivities, then you will not do something that will be considered offensive. And I don't think this has to do with whether we're able to assess the record clearly or not. It has to do with the emotional scars of that terrible period. And my argument to the popes, and I've said it both to Pope Benedict and to Pope Francis, is that for as long as there are survivors still with us from that terrible period, in which surely one cannot say that the church did everything it should have done during that period, to make some of the head of the church a saint would be to imply that it did do that. And that would be offensive and a double um, uh, insult into injury for the survivors of the Holocaust. Therefore, delay this at least for a significant period of time. But I think that the release and the opening up of the Vatican are precisely designed to enable the Vatican to go ahead and declare Pius XII uh, a saint. Um, It will definitely be received badly in the Jewish community, but I think our relationship is too strong and too important to us for it to torpedo it in any manner. Which is an amazing testament to the state of the relationship today. Let's fast forward 80 years, that is to say, to now. Um, To the man you'll be meeting with tomorrow, to Pope Francis. What's your take on his standing at the moment within the Catholic Church? You know, this is a man who is beloved by the masses and by non-Catholics. But it seems like some of the institutional insiders of the Vatican, of the church throughout the world, are uncomfortable with the direction that Pope Francis is moving the church in. It's not just institutional figures or people within the Vatican bureaucracy or within the Catholic Church bureaucracy. I would say it's significant segments within the Catholic Church of a more traditionalist, you might say more conservative, with a small c orientation, who feel that the Pope is not clear and categorical enough with regards to theological teachings. They feel he's a bit fuzzy on this issue. And this has a lot to do with Pope Francis's personality. In fact, it's got more to do with his style than to do with substance, because exactly the reason why the world is so charmed by Pope Francis and what makes him so beloved within his followers within the Catholic Church is his human touch, his personal manner, the human encounter. And that's so important to him that it overrides theological, doctrinal matters. This doesn't mean that he doesn't think those are important, but he nevertheless gives greater weight to the personal dimension. However, I think that the Western world, and especially the secular world, that doesn't really know the Catholic Church very well, has simply adopted its own narrative and very often made Pope Francis into something that he really is not quite what they think he is. And um, I'll explain that in a moment, but let me just suggest 
why I think the Western world and the secular world has done that it is a very interesting reflection on the fact that the secular world, and even an agnostic world, and even an atheist world, still yearns for a religious figure of leadership, of character, and of personality that they can look up to and take leadership from. And that's really fascinating. It shows how fundamentally uh, spiritually searching our, even our secular world is. They really want that, and Pope Francis provides it. But let me, in order to illustrate why I'm saying what I think and why I don't think that the image is really correct, let me illustrate it. The media went really wild over a phrase that Pope Francis uh, mentioned when giving a briefing to journalists on the plane that was dealing with issues of homosexuality. And it was emblazoned on headlines over newspapers around the world. Who am I to judge? He said about talking about homosexuals. What the press did not report is that that was just a throwaway at the end of a presentation to the press on the plane explaining why the church opposed homosexuality and would never consider homosexuality to be a legitimate alternative lifestyle. Now, none of that was reported. Why? Because it didn't fit in with the Western secular narrative that wants to be able to portray this pope in their image. And that's fascinating that takes place. So, there, I, I think both the fact there is a certain resistance to him because his style is considered to be not doctrinally clear enough and concise enough, but a lot of it has to do with the fact that the West is simply not reading this guy correctly. He's no liberal. He's a wonderful human being. He's an open, compassionate human being, a caring human being, but he follows the doctrine of the Catholic Church, which he really believes in. Just before we close, David, you know, there's something you said earlier that's really ringing in my ears, which is that if the relationship between the Jewish people and the Catholic Church, to put it very bluntly, can go from crusades to comedy, that is comedy with a T, to friendship, then really any relationship, no matter how strife-ridden, can turn into a friendship. And so I, I want to ask you about some work that you're involved in, religious tolerance efforts at the highest echelons of, of the Muslim world. Can you tell us about the work that you do with Saudi Arabia? Sure. And it's not only Saudi Arabia today, it's with the Gulf as well as with countries in the Maghreb and North Africa and the long-standing relationships within Jordan. Uh, throughout the Arab world, there is probably more engagement today with the Jewish world and interreligious engagement than ever before, perhaps in history since the Middle Ages. So yes, of course, politics poisons the relationship. And the Israeli-Palestinian conflict or the Israeli-Arab conflict is a lightning conductor for all kinds of complexes that have got nothing to do with it, in essence. And nevertheless, it serves as a focus. And of course, I can elaborate on that in itself. Yet, nevertheless, despite all that, there are very significant developments taking place, which often have got nothing whatsoever to do with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, nothing to do whatsoever with Israelis, but are a reflection of other global shifts and transformations, not least of all happening within the Muslim world itself. And one of the most dramatic examples of this, in fact, I'll give two examples from Saudi Arabia. Uh, the one is uh, an institution that I'm involved in that comes out of a remarkable initiative by the previous king of Saudi Arabia, King uh, Abdullah bin Abdulaziz, 
who in many respects started a process of modernization, and even maybe you call it reformation in Saudi Arabia. These things don't sound very big to us, but he was the first one to open up higher education for women and for there to be women's universities and even a co-educational university during his time. And he was the first one to initiate the idea of interfaith dialogue. He convened the Muslim world in Mecca in, I think, 2005. And then uh, he... Uh, took his initiative for interfaith dialogue amongst the faiths of the world. He called it interreligious and intercultural dialogue. He took it to the United Nations. He, I think, was a bit disappointed that the world wasn't more excited about it. But the result, cut the long story short, and it is quite a long and fascinating story, he decided to establish a center together with Austria, Spain, and the Vatican uh, for interfaith dialogue and intercultural dialogue, for conflict resolution, for interfaith uh, um, education, training. And uh, this is called, the, by its acronym, KAISI, the King Abdullah International Center for Interreligious and Intercultural Dialogue in Vienna. And this institute is directed by a board of nine, or its policy is determined by a board of nine. Three Christians representing the Vatican, the ecumenical Orthodox Patriarchate, the most important Orthodox institution, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Three Muslims, two Sunni, one Shia. The Shia used to be Minister of Culture under... Khatami, Minister of Culture of Iran, he now lives in exile in, in London. There is one Hindu, um, one Buddhist. Thankfully, they're women, otherwise we'd have an impossible gender imbalance. And I'm the Jew. Now, for Saudi Arabia to have agreed that an Israeli rabbi would be on the board of their center for promoting interfaith and interreligious dialogue is not a simple thing. And this is a, not only do they do wonderful work, and you can just go online and kaisi.org and see the amazing activities that are taking place to really doing important things around the world and also preparing for a future generation of interfaith leaders trained and developing relationships between them. But it also gives me, through their conferences and colloquia, access to religious leaders in the Muslim world, in particular Saudi Arabia, who have never met a Jew before, let alone a rabbi, let alone an Israeli rabbi. And when I have the opportunity to meet these people, I see it as my, if you like, my religious, my professional duty to encounter them and to meet with them. You can see initially their reaction is one of Arab hospitality and very nice until they realize they're talking to a Jew, to a rabbi, to an Israeli rabbi. And you can actually see fear in their eyes. They've been fed such a diet of anti-Jewish propaganda that they really think I'm dangerous by their very origins. But then they see me speak to them a little bit in Arabic, even though I have a translator with me, and I know about Islam and I can show respect to them. And you can see how in their eyes this fear moved to puzzlement, moved to wonder, then to a positive attitude. And, and it's amazing how quickly you can change attitudes through positive engagement. That's a great opportunity. I could tell you much more about that. But as time is running out, I just want to tell you about something else. And that is the amazing change that's ha taken place in the most important Saudi Muslim world institution, the Muslim World League, which has been traditionally the agency for a propagation of hardline, narrow-minded Wahhabism. Is today now directed for the last two years by a wonderful Muslim leader by the name of Dr. Muhammad Alisa, who has not only issued declarations for Holocaust Memorial Days, calling on the Arab world to understand what the Shoah means and to respect Jewish suffering and to develop positive relations with the Jewish community. He's visited synagogues in the Rue de Victoire in Paris, with the synagogue in New York. He's having a conference at the United Nations at the end of April, or the beginning of May, and precisely to promote uh, understanding between the different communities. And this is the hard line heartland of the Muslim world. 
Islam never demonized us the way Christianity did. Our relationship has been poisoned by political factors and broader geopolitical factors, but we can overcome those obstacles through building personal relationships and understanding. And this is a dramatic, both of these are dramatic examples of that. What an incredible note to end this conversation on. David, thank you so much for joining us, and we look forward to having you on again sometime very soon to talk more about this. Thank you, Sefi. All the best. It's time for our special Israeli elections segment. Each week through the upcoming general elections on April 9th, we'll be bringing you an exclusive update on the race to determine who will be the next occupant of the prime minister's residence on Balfour Street in Jerusalem. This is the battle for Balfour. If you're looking for a basic primer on the Israeli elections, please check out the January 3rd episode of AJC Passport featuring Lahav Harkov of the Jerusalem Post. Joining us today on the Battle for Balfour is Avi Mayer, AJC's Jerusalem-based Managing Director of Global Communications. Avi, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Sophie. Now, not any party that wants to can run for the Knesset, right? Are there some grounds on which parties or specific individuals can be prevented from running? Yeah, well, the... Central Elections Committee uh, is a body established by the Knesset in 1969 to oversee the entire electoral process, including the approval or disapproval of party lists. Um, Now, an amendment to the law of 1969 that was enacted in 1985 um, set out several criteria according to which a party could be disqualified. Um, And those criteria are the negation uh, of Israel's existence as a Jewish and democratic state, um, incitement to racism, Um, or support for armed struggle on the part of either an enemy state or a terrorist organization against the state of Israel. Um, And it's that first part, the negation of Israel's existence as a Jewish and democratic state, that has um, been under discussion uh, really throughout the the body's existence, um, and particularly in recent years as various efforts have been made to disqualify party lists on those grounds. Although just thinking historically, the most prominent example in my mind of a party being banned from running was actually the Kach party. Isn't that right? Correct. The Kach party was disqualified uh, under those grounds. Um, It it was recognized as a terrorist organization, uh, both in the U.S. and Israel and elsewhere. Um, And so the committee decided that it would not be fit to run for Knesset, and that's why it was not permitted to do so. And that was uh, that was a kind of extremist, far-right, anti-Arab Jewish party. Uh, correct. And unfortunately, it has several descendants, uh, one of which is involved in the current electoral campaign. And that was, I think, part of the topic under discussion today. Right, which brings us to exactly what happened this week in the Central Elections Committee. They were debating, you know, I'm sure that there were many petitions before them, but specifically there was a question about the far-right Otsma Yehudit party, which is a Kahanist party that is seen to be an ideological descendant of Kach, um, and also the Arab extremist party Balad. So first, can you tell us a little bit about Otsma and also a little bit about Balad? Well, as you correctly said, Otsma Yehudit, uh, or Jewish Power, uh, is a relatively new party that has deep roots in a, a range of far-right uh, groupings and individuals uh, here in Israel. Um, most prominently, of course, uh, is 
Kach, or the Kahana Party, which of course was led by Rabbi Meir Kahana, who was himself an extremely controversial figure here in Israel and around the world. And what we see today is that several individuals who view themselves as followers of Rabbi Kahana have submitted their candidacy for the Knesset under this Otsma Yehudit party name. Um, These are individuals who uh, have espoused deeply racist views, who have uh, made uh, homophobic statements, statements to the effect that Arabs should be cast out of Israel um, and are viewed as, as marginal figures within Israeli society. Um, So there was a petition submitted by a range of individuals and groups to disqualify them from running for Knesset. Um, And ultimately, the Central Elections Committee issued a ruling uh, approving not only their running as a party, but the specific uh, candidacy of uh, Michael Ben-Ari, who is the leader of the party, um, who himself claims that he is not racist, despite having (laughs) made a series of, uh, of racist statements in the past. Um, amongst the other rulings that were issued by the Central Elections Committee yesterday um, was the disapproval of the Ram Balad list, which is a merger between two Arab lists uh, here in Israel. Um, the, uh, both those parties currently exist in the Knesset uh, under what's called the Joint List, which is a merger of several different predominantly Arab parties in this country. Um, but the, the really controversial part of the current merger is Balad. Uh, Balad has several individuals um, that have been viewed uh, in a rather negative way by the overwhelming majority of Israeli society. Um, a, a previous leader of the party, Azmi Bashara, uh, is in uh, self, self-imposed exile after being uh, charged with treason for having assisted Hezbollah during a previous war with Israel. Um, there is uh, an outgoing member of Knesset named Hanin Zoabi, who uh, is, is deeply unpopular and has traveled the world, um, engaging in what many regard as uh, a besmirching of Israel's name. Um, and so there are, I believe, many grounds in which uh, Israelis believe that this party should not be permitted to run. And in fact, the Central Elections Committee did rule that they should not be permitted to do so. Um, and another notable uh, ruling yesterday was against um, an individual named Omer Ofer Kassif, who is running with another Arab majority party named Hadash, um, which ha- itself has actually communist roots. Um, and he himself was disqualified from running uh, due to a series of statements that he's made equating Israeli uh, soldiers and Israeli officials to Nazis um, and engaging in other uh, incendiary rhetoric. Now, what was interesting to me about this, if I saw correctly, is that actually the Central Elections Committee made precisely the opposite decisions of what the attorney general uh, had recommended. He had said that Ofer Kasif should be allowed to run, that Balad should be allowed to run, and that Otsma should be banned. So uh, what I'm wondering is, ultimately, on, on these kinds of decisions in Israel, they often end up appealed to the high court. Do you think, and I'm, I'm not asking you here to be a, a legal prognosticator, but do you think that this is going to stand as is, or will we see this appealed to Israel's Supreme Court, and uh, and ultimately that's where the decision will be made? In, in all the cases, uh, the various petitioners have said they will take this to uh, the High Court of Justice. Um, in the past, the High Court has uh, struck down similar decisions by the Central Elections Committee. Um, I would not be surprised if that happened here as well. Um, ultimately, it's important to realize that the Central Elections Committee, though it is headed by uh, a high court justice, in this case, um, Justice Hanan Meltzer, um, for the previous election, it was uh, Justice Salim uh, Jubran, who is an Arab citizen of Israel. 
um, is primarily made up of members of Knesset or representatives of party lists. So it is a deeply political body mm. um, that makes these decisions largely on the basis of political or ideological lines. Um, and so there is a process of judicial review um, that will uh, ultimately render a decision uh, based on its interpretation of the law. Um, and I would not be surprised if some of these decisions are ultimately reversed. Well, we'll be watching that process very closely. Avi, what would it mean if this entire Arab party is not allowed to run? You know, there aren't that many seats that are held by the the Arab parties. Actually, I think there are 13 seats in the current Knesset, which is more than 10 percent. But would this be a, a major blow to Arab representation in Israel? Well, it's important to realize that the Knesset is extremely fractured. And so even though... Uh, the joint list only holds 13 seats. That's actually the third largest list in the current Knesset. Um, and it, it, it's, I think, important to realize that when we think of the role of the Arab parties uh, in the Knesset and in various uh, governing structures, uh, they've never been uh, asked and they've never indicated an inclination or a, a willingness to enter any of the governing coalitions in Israel's history. Um, however, they have in the past assisted coalitions that were not able to form a majority of 61 seats in the Knesset govern anyway. Um, and there have been indications or suggestions, perhaps, that in the event that a uh, Benny Gantz slash Yair Lapid-led uh, left-wing bloc failed to reach a 61-seat majority, that the Arab parties could help them uh, reach that majority and therefore govern, even if they weren't a part of the coalition in the strictest sense. So this does actually have some implications for uh, what a future government could look like. And I think we'll all be looking forward to seeing what the uh, high court ultimately rules. Avi, thank you so much for joining us on the Battle for Balfour. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Representative Ted Deutsch, a Democrat from South Florida, the chair of the House Ethics Committee and a senior member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee and House Judiciary Committee, gave a perfect speech on the floor of the House this week. We're going to play just a couple of minutes for you now as we close because the leadership that Congressman Ted Deutsch showed is good for the Jews. Because of anti-Semitism over millennia, millions of Jews have been hated, targeted, expelled from their countries, violently attacked, killed, and exterminated. Words lead to action and to death. There is too much hatred, too many other people who are targeted, and we need to support all of them. But we are having this debate because of the language of one of our colleagues, language that suggests that Jews like me, who serve in the United States in Congress, and whose father earned a Purple Heart fighting the Nazis in the Battle of the Bulge, that we are not loyal Americans? Why are we unable to singularly condemn anti-Semitism? Why can't we call out anti-Semitism and show that we've learned the lessons of history? It feels like we're only able to call the use of anti-Semitic language by a colleague of ours, any colleague of ours, if we're addressing all forms of hatred. And it feels like we can't say it's anti-Semitism unless everyone agrees that it's anti-Semitism. Who gets to define 
what counts as stereotypes and discrimination? Isn't it the people who experience the bias? The people who have experienced that hatred for thousands of years? If Jews whose families were persecuted or attacked or killed are talking about how anti-Semitic words can lead at their most hateful and violent extremes, then it's anti-Semitism. And take my word for it. If you don't do that, then please understand that an anti-Semite will hear those words as a dog whistle. What's been so difficult for so many people in my community is that people who are fearful when anti-Semitic tropes are used are being told that they're wrong. Jewish elected officials are saying that this history that we know well is invoked by referencing dual loyalty and some of my colleagues are saying that it doesn't matter what that history means to me. It is intensely personal because it is ongoing. In Europe, in Asia, in the Middle East, in South America, and in the United States, 11 people were killed less than six months ago in a synagogue because they're Jews. What's happening in our country should alarm us all. The attacks on our colleagues because they are Muslim or African-American or Hispanic or members of the LGBT community, any attack must, must be condemned when it's based on hatred. But when a colleague invokes classic anti-Semitic lies three times, then this body must condemn that anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is worthy of being taken seriously on its own. It's worthy of being singularly called out. Jews control the world. Jews care only about money. Jews have dual loyalty and can't be patriotic members of the country in which they live. Words matter. For generations, they have had dangerous consequences for me, for my family, and for my people. This shouldn't be so hard. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Kukang Do. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.